Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So we sometimes do a show about somebody we're interested in, even if that person won't do the show with us. <laughs> so we did a show about Bill Murray, uh, and we talked to you know pretty much everybody except Bill Murray. And we did it live because we were kind of hoping maybe Bill Murray would hear it and call in, but that didn't happen either. But it's, it was still a really fun show, and it helped us kind of get at what is special about Bill Murray. And now, well, technically yesterday, depending on when you're listening, Bill Murray has turned 70 years old, which seems both impossible and quite necessary, actually. So we thought you'd like to hear some ruminations about Bill Murray? Maybe a little bit more than that, too. So we'll meet you on the other side of the news. I've never talked about this before, but I have kind of a family connection to Bill Murray. A couple of years ago, after Whiskey Club, I was... I don't know, seized with this sudden urge to call him. And it was really late, and he was definitely really sleepy. But, you know, I've always wondered if he remembered it. I got a sort of a drunken phone call from a friend of mine's sister, who I really like. And she's funny because she's really funny, and she drinks a little. <clears throat> she called me in the middle of the night, and I was like, oh, boy. You know, you ever get someone call you who they're not at their best? <laughs> oh, my God, he did remember it. And now he's telling Charlie Rose about it. I am so embarrassed. But she was so charming and she was so lovely. And she just kept saying, you could, you have no idea how much you could do, Bill. You, if you could just, you could do so much. And I've never had anyone talk like that. And it was funny because I, it's like a, it was like a drinking phone call in the middle of the night. And I listened to, to her for 40 minutes or so, 45 minutes while I was, you know, I was sound asleep. It was totally not 45 minutes. At least I... I don't think it was. Was I supposed to set a kitchen timer or something? It was a drunk dial, not a souffle. It was really like it came from the other side. Yeah. You know, it felt like it. It was sort of like a, you know, a voice that was sort of intoxicated or like a, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, the, the visionaries, you know, a visionary speaking to you in the night and coming on in your dream. And I, you know, just, I, I hope to remember that kind of thing. You just try to remember those things, those, that encouragement. Wow, it sounds like it actually meant something to him. So is this a funny story or is it a serious one? The fact that I can't tell is so Bill Murray. That guy spends a lot of time walking up to the place where the road forks to either funny or sad, and then he manages to run in both lanes at the same time. And that's why we decided to do a whole show about him, a show that he's not on. And now he agreed to play the Rottweiler in Garfield 2 because he thought it was a movie about the president, Colin McEnroe. Actually, Bill Murray was in the Garfield movies because he, he apparently misread the script credit on the first one and thought the Coen brothers were involved in them somehow. So I can be forgiven for my mistake as well. Uh, so um, Bill Murray has turned 70. That seems kind of impossible, but also necessary because, in fact, he just exists on so many different levels. You know, and he 
he also is such a creature of dualism. You know, there's his own Jekyll and Hyde personality, which our primary guest here is going to be talking about uh, a little bit. And, and then his relationship to to lightness and darkness. I mean, this is a guy who can play it as light as it can be played and as Groucho-like and manic as it can be played. But it's also uh, – he rarely takes his foot all the way out of the dark side. You know, it's always there somewhere. And sometimes he's just all the way there. Um, and – and then, well, I, actually, the other dualism that I love about Bill Murray, and I'm going to talk uh, to our guest about it, too, is his whole attitude towards show business, which is, in some ways, he is as seduced by show business as a human being could be. Uh, and uh, I know from uh, reading Robert Schnackenberg's book, The Big Bad Book of Bill Murray, that, for example, he loves Tony Newley. Well, I mean, you, you can't love Anthony Newley without loving show business. But he also has this very sort of dark, sardonic take on show business. And nothing exemplifies that better than the Christmas special, which is both kind of a loving look at the notion of a holiday showbiz celebrity-studded special and kind of a claustrophobic, Sartre-esque rejection <laughs> <laughs> of the same model. So that's Bill Murray all uh, all put together and all taken apart. Uh, but Bob, Robert Schnackenberg, before I even let you talk, which I realize I haven't let you do for like five minutes, um, let's just play one clip. We, we sent, uh, uh, we asked our friend uh, Julia Pistelli, freelance producer, um, to talk to some comedians, some comedy performers uh, about, um, uh, about Bill Murray. So let's hear what they said. What performances of Bill Murray's do you like the best? Space Jam, I think, was obviously the most groundbreaking of <laughs> Bill Murray's filmography by far. Meatballs, but I haven't seen Meatballs. I just think it's a good name for a movie. I'm thinking of like Bill Murray and Space Jam, like that kind of situation. Did you know that a significant portion of the members of our comedy company answered that question with the phrase Space Jam? <laughs> If Bill Murray went down in some scandal or series of completely horrible movies, I think people would be really sad. If, if you went like Cosby, like you <laughs> Yes, if you went if Bill Cosby. Murray went Cosby, I think I would be devastated. All right. So um, there's a lot in there, but there's a lot more to, to come, too. So um, Robert Schnackenberg, first of all, this this oeuvre here is clearly a labor of love. This is this incredible compendium uh, of all things Bill Murray, ranging from analyses of movies he actually did to movies he was almost in, to things he likes, things he doesn't like, people he likes, people he doesn't like, uh, anecdotes. Um, first of all, was there anybody else you could do, you could do a book like this about? Well, I've actually done two previously. I did one on uh, William Shatner called mm. The Encyclopedia Shatnerica mm. back in 1998. And I followed that up with Christopher Walken, A to Z, a few years later. And so my editor and I were casting about trying to find the, the perfect third person to round out the trilogy. I think I had dreams of a, of a leather-embossed slipcase edition with all three books inside. So we needed to find a third person. And uh, Bill Murray was actually one of the first people we hit upon who would be a perfect subject for an A to Z type treatment. And, you know, I mean, he and Shatner uh, share the quality of at some point achieving a kind of meta consciousness about I don't I'm not sure I would say the same thing about Walken but maybe you would obviously you would know better but Bill, one of the things about Bill Murray is he's he's playing three level chess with us at all times right correct correct there there's a, the commentary on on the pretensions and and pomposity of show business and then there's a sort of a sincere embrace of the world of show business which is kind of as you <clears throat> said earlier up top the the dual element of his personality. Those those two elements are always there and they're always in tension together. Uh, with Shatner, it was more a case of at a certain point in his career, 
I think he came to understand the camp value of his own persona and began to exploit it uh, for comic effect. So um, I think there's a split in, in Shatner's career where at a certain point he, he understands that. I think Bill Murray knew that from the beginning and was always willing to play off that tension. Although it's kind of interesting. There, there are splits in both men's career, and I don't want to belabor the Shatner-Murray uh, comparison too much, but it's sort of the reverse, right? Shatner starts out as a pretty serious actor, then gets into Star Trek, but still regards that as a serious acting assignment and treats it as a serious acting assignment. And then later, as you say, he winds up you know, engaging in a kind of postmodern take on himself and making al- albums with Ben Folds and stuff like that. Right. He had, to, he had to wait until his career pretty much bottomed out in the 70s, and he was you know, basically doing match game every other week before before he, he came to that epiphany. And so uh, with Bill Murray, it's kind of the reverse. He starts out as a pu- purely comic actor uh, and uh, you know comes out, out of an improv tradition and gets into Saturday Night Live and makes a whole series of comic movies which within which there's development. There's a lot of development from Meatballs and Stripes and stuff like that to Groundhog Day and What About Bob, which are these you know more rounded out um, you know timeless pieces of, of comedy acting. But, but then there's then comes his big sharp break. I think was is in Rushmore where he suddenly realizes that he can explore darkness. Correct. Um, there is a sharp break. Although if you really look back. Over the entirety of his career, the the break isn't as sharp as it seems because from his earliest days as a as a film actor, as a leading man, he was always trying to springboard into more dramatic parts. I mean, I think where the Buffalo Rome, where he played Hunter Thompson, was an attempt to do yeah. that. Um, the Razor's Edge, his labor of love, which came out in 1984 on the heels of Ghostbusters, was definitely an attempt to make that transition. Right. I, I would say no. I mean, I, I can't think of another comic actor or comedian, with the possible exception of Robin Williams, who as soon as early in the process. So he makes Ghostbusters and essentially uses Ghostbusters as collateral as as to mortgage the ability to adapt uh, to adapt this you know Somerset mom novel which is kind of the Somerset mom novel it's even a departure for Somerset mom in a way I'm sure his agent was saying what are you doing here this isn't a Somerset mom novel but it's really but it's the kind of novel that a young man falls in love with a young man who maybe has some spiritual thoughts you know but the notion that you would come out of this you know, grin the kind of grinning and deadpan cynicism and uh, and comedy that Murray had done so far, and say, "No, I'm not going to do this incredibly commercial thing unless unless you let me make this other thing." He's it's very early on in the process for him to be pulling that kind of weight. Yes, I mean there are other there are other comic actors who kind of tried to make that that same leap. I mean, I think Steve Martin did it with Pennies from Heaven, mm-hmm. which was early in his career and and was a disaster the same way that Razor's Edge was uh, from a commercial standpoint. Um, so a lot of times they, they there's a little dramatic actor inside all of these these great clowns, and and that's really what they want to do and what they eventually want to. You know, just like said they say every actor wants to direct. Murray didn't really want to direct, but he did want to get the razor's edge on the screen. And as you say, he was able to leverage his participation in Ghostbusters into getting that film bankrolled by Paramount. There's another little movie that's in your book that I'd never heard of before that's also right there in 1984, right? It's that's. It's like really super obscure. I forget what it's called. Uh, nothing lasts forever. Yeah, nothing the, lasts the Tom forever. Schiller movie. Yes, that's uh, that's really a Tom Schiller passion project that Murray sort of lent his prestige to because they were friends from Saturday Night Live, and and Murray wanted to help him out. But yes, that's uh, Murray does a, a very very small role in that, but uh, was definitely an art film that did not have any commercial prospects whatsoever, and he was willing to lend his imprimatur to that project. So. Um 
Well, we're going to play a clip here. I'm uh, using the fair use doctrine to uh, grab a little clip from Slate's uh, Culture Gabfest. They were they were talking about um, the the Christmas special, a very Murray Christmas. Um, but towards the end, Stephen Metcalf was talking about Murray's emergence on Saturday Night Live when we first begin to see him, and he really does come on as as Stephen Metcalf says uh, to replace Chevy Chase, who couldn't be more different, right? You have this in, an incredibly preppy uh, guy uh, who has become the face and the voice of the show. He's the guy who yells live from New York at Saturday Night, Saturday night and he's gone to start his movie career. Along comes Bill Murray. Uh, let's listen to Stephen Metcalf. Murray had this impossible situation, these shoes to fill, the loafers to fill. I mean, the whole thing about Chevy Chase was that he was this completely unpolished, technique-free preppy, which was probably extremely hard to pull off on live TV. And in came Murray, this sebaceous, lumbering Chicagoan with a very broad style. And one of his early characters was the lounge singer, Nick Winters. And the whole joke of it was just, it was so annoying to watch bill murray sing that was the joke and he and nick winters didn't understand that he was a terrible singer and this kind of wore you down and wore you down until you found it incredibly endearing and then the bit kind of worked and one of the really famous ones was him singing star wars this ridiculous you know uh version of the star wars theme song with lyrics anyway so i want people to go and rediscover the super early Bill Murray, who's still finding his way on Saturday Night Live, doing this lounge singer Nick Winters, and then one more semi-early, mid-period Bill Murray movie that no one talks about anymore, written by one of my favorite screenwriters, Richard Price, the genius behind a lot of The Wire, called Mad Dog and Glory. It stars Uma Thurmond and Robert De Niro and Bill Murray. It's mostly forgotten. It's kind of a mobster chamber piece, if such a thing is possible. All right. So we'll talk about that mobster chamber piece in just a second. But uh, Robert Schnackenberg, let's talk about that. So on SNL um, and early on, we do see that that dualistic attitude towards showbiz. You know, I think maybe one of the first sketches, if not the first sketch, is Bill Murray, who's basically having kind of a variety show inside his shower stall. Uh, he's singing up, up and away and all this kind of stuff and bringing in his neighbors. Um, and then we do get Nick Winters and Nick Winters, exactly as Stephen Metcalf says, is this lounge singer who doesn't know how bad he is and yeah he's singing Star Wars those Abdul-Jabbar Wars <laughs> and and Murray is kind of landing it in this very interesting place right he's it's not that he can't sing and he's not singing badly for comic effect exactly he's singing he sounds like somebody singing as well as he can uh, in, in a way that's completely cloying and treacly and, and horrible yes and the, the Nick uh, the lounge, lounge singer uh, character was one that he had done um, at Second City and brought over to SNL when he arrived at SNL in early 1977. He had been doing that character on stage. He's actually based on a real guy named Jimmy Damon, a, a Chicago nightclub performer who uh, used to wear the, the, the shirt open at the collar to show his, his copious chest hair and the uh, the tight leather pants. And this guy was serious. I mean, he really did sing those kind of loungy favorites in that loungy style. And um, that's really what inspired Murray to create the character, although he's always denied that it's based on Jimmy Damon because I think he was uh, afraid Jimmy Damon might sue him. Um, it's pretty much an open secret in Chicago that that's, that's who the character is based on. So um, that is really honest, real earnest, showbizy stylings from, from Jimmy Damon that, that Bill Murray appropriated for that character. So he came by that honestly. 
And I think it's on Saturday Night Live, too, that, that Murray begins to develop a, a, a comic knack that's very much his own. And it's, it's the comic the – one, the thing that it shares with his predecessor, Chevy Chase, is he often seems like he's not trying. And, and I'm sure a lot of work goes into seeming like he's not trying. And that he also – and he begins to have another one of his dualistic abilities, which is the ability to be in a sketch and committed to it, but also outside it somehow. You know, so he's constantly, you know, wrapping the table and calling people knuckleheads and kind of chatting with the audience about the sketch while he's doing the sketch, too. Something that he and Groucho Marx, I think, uniquely were able to do, to be in something and also be taking a look at it somehow. And I think that that quality, that sort of meta quality, that winking quality, um, really is was unique to him on, on the early years of Saturday Night Live. I mean, as you say, Chevy did a little bit of that. It was really um, something that you found... I found was more prevalent on SCTV, which I, I tended to watch more when I was a little kid growing mm-hmm. up. Um, the the comedy that you saw in the early days of SNL with John Belushi, you know, as Samurai was really a, was more of a national lampoon slash and burn type comedy, and that really wasn't Bill Murray's forte. I mean, I think I think he was really a precursor to a more ironic style that came into vogue in the 80s. So he was really sort of an avatar of, of the, the emerging style of comedy rather than a look back to the 70s and, and a really, um, as I say, the more slash and burn type of comedy that was prevalent in the National Lampoon and in, on the uh, uh, stage shows that uh, Second City did. Well, since uh, Stephen Metcalf mentioned it, we should uh, talk about uh, Mad Dog and Glory. Now, here's one of the reasons you want to get the Big Bad Book of Bill Murray, a critical appreciation of the world's finest actor by Robert Schnackenberg. Because if you think you know the canon a little bit, first of all, you might not know that movie. If you did know that movie, you might not know a whole bunch of things behind it. So no sooner did I hear Stephen Metcalf talking about that, and I will confess I have not seen that movie. Uh, But then reading in your book – there's like a lot of interesting stuff about this, including Richard Price, whom Metcalf name checks there, uh, is, of course, this you know, incredible writer. But he had a deal where the movie would be shot word for word from his script, right? Nothing could be changed? Yes. That was the deal they made with Richard Price, who wrote Clockers and, and wrote for The Wire and a bunch of other things. Um, they said, we'll film it exactly as you write it. And um, that's essentially what they did. They didn't change a word of his screenplay. And then when the studio execs saw the finished product, they said, well, you did exactly what we asked you to do. You filmed it word for word, and we hate it. So (laughs) go back and reshoot the ending and uh, change a whole bunch of stuff. And so the film ended up sort of moldering on a shelf for about a year. They delayed the release and did some retakes. Um, they had to wait for Robert De Niro's hair to grow back in because he had gotten a buzz cut in the interim and Bill Murray had gained about 30 pounds. So they had to wait for him to take the weight off. And then they went back and, and reshot it and um, uh, it died at the box office. It was it was lauded by some critics, I think dismissed by most. But it's really a, um, one of the one of the first films where you see Murray sort of broadening his acting horizons and, and playing a more dramatic role. He plays a mobster. It was the part that was originally written for Robert De Niro. De Niro preferred to play the meek crime scene photographer in that movie and, and left the menacing uh, mob boss to uh, Bill Murray to play. So it was kind of a reversal of roles there. Um, definitely a precursor to some of the uh, the darker roles, the, the Rushmores, that he would play later on in the 90s. So that's really a harbinger of things to come as far as Murray's career went. Uh, we're going to talk about his broadening his acting horizons in the second segment. Before we go to the second segment, I want to just uh, come back and just jump on one thing that you uh, said, uh, which is uh, a reference to him putting on 30 pounds. One thing about Bill Murray is that his 
his body is really important. And he says that too. He says yeah, you act through your body. And we The intro that we did, we sort of um, cut up this very peculiar and almost hypnotic interview that Charlie Rose did with him where you just are not seeing any of the Bill Murray that we've been talking about so far. But a guy who's actually just decided to really kind of go for it and talk as seriously about himself and his craft as you're ever going to see him talk. But I think that's in one of the many places where he says he, you act through your body. You, 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 and this is a guy who is physically interesting, you know? I mean, he's a guy who, as you point out, in Kingpin, when they, during the bowling scenes and this Farley Brothers thing, he bowled three strikes right in a row in one take. I mean, he was, he was able to do something that they probably expected to have. 50 takes to do. He was able to do it. Um, I just was watching kind of a supercut of things that he did on the David Letterman show. It's unbelievable just giving up his body, you know, in just all, all kinds of really kind of slightly alarming ways. But this is a guy, I mean, and he, I think he says in the, in the Rose interview too, he said, everything's in your body. You know, everything's in your body. Uh, he quotes Clint Eastwood saying, you know, when you kill a man, you kill every chance he ever had in life. Yeah, I think uh, I think he's also cited Groucho Marx as uh, one of the influences on yes. his his physical comedy. That the way that Groucho would kind of get up into the face and into the mush of the person that he was, you know, comically menacing, mm-hmm. uh, whether it was Margaret Dumont or whomever. Um, so that that's that's definitely someone. That I think he draws a lot on on old comedians in that style as far as the physical work that he does. And I think it's also. A testament to the level of commitment that you, you get from your improv training, and particularly he got from Del Close when he was at Second City. Um, that that's, that's definitely an important element of his comic persona. All right. Let's grab a break. Here we'll be back with more Robert Schnackenberg. What is your favorite Bill Murray movie? Caddyshack, by far. How come? Uh, it's just a classic. I can tell you my least favorite Bill Murray movie <laughs> is Groundhog Day. What do you think people like about Bill Murray? That he, although he's Hollywood, he's not super elite, you know. He, he makes his own schedule, doesn't have an agent, decides what movies he wants to do on his own. I think he's a good comic. He's funny. But he's done well in the serious roles as well. From Ghostbusters to Caddyshack, it's really uh, it's cosmic stuff. He's kind of become like a grandfatherly figure within comedy and within the Hollywood community. All right, that's one of our interns, Dan Schultz, out on the streets talking to people about Bill Murray. It's a pretty nuanced set of comments for uh, just people walking up to a microphone. So um, with us now is uh, Robert Schnackenberg. He is the, the author of The Big Bad Book of Bill Murray, a critical appreciation of the world's finest actor. Um, all right. So I want to kind of get into this whole idea of Bill Murray as an actor because at a certain point – OK. So comic acting is hard. Some people say dying is easy. Comedy is hard. That comedy, The comic acting that he does in What About Bob is maybe – as challenging as any acting that anybody can be asked to do. It's really hard to be funny and hard to stay in that kind of a character. But at a certain point, he seems to want to do more. He begins really thinking about himself as a serious actor. I think it's significant that he regards Broken Flowers as possibly, you know, this very moody, not at all funny Jim Jarmusch movie as such a great 
he felt that, that that was as good as he could get. He almost quit, quit afterwards because he thought, I won't ever be better than that. So at a certain point anyway, um, he's ready to do that, right? He, he wants – he thinks he can be that other kind of actor. Yes, I think he, he always thought he could be that kind of actor. I, I don't think he was quite ready to be that kind of actor when he was making, say, Razor's Edge in 84. Uh, but then he took uh, four or five years off on sabbatical away from Hollywood and kind of got away from the grind of it for a while. Came back and did, uh, you know, Scrooged and Ghostbusters 2 and reestablished himself as a commercial presence. Um, and then makes Groundhog Day, which is one of those inflection points in his career in 1993, where he kind of shows that he can do, he can capture both sides. He can do the dramatic stuff and, and the comic stuff in, in the same film. Uh, so that's kind of a harbinger of things to come. Then for the rest of, of the 90s, he's really kind of flailing, making you know, movies like Larger Than Life, where he co-stars with an elephant, and The Man Who Knew Too Little, which is kind of this, you know, lowbrow, Hitchcocky style comedy where almost anybody could have been plugged into the role, and these, these films tank, critics hate them, and he's sort of lost his way as a leading man. And then, of course, he hooks up with Wes Anderson in the late 90s, makes Rushmore and sort of devotes himself for about the next 10 years to doing sort of high-impact character roles and really supporting roles in movies and doesn't really play a lot of leads. And that kind of reestablishes his street cred a bit because he's able to plug himself into some more ambitious indie-style projects uh, and play some more dramatic roles. I mean, he's in uh, Royal Tenenbaums and then comes back as a lead again in Life Aquatic and sort of reestablishes himself that way. So he sort of found his way uh, through a back door into being more of a dramatic leading man. Yeah, he's now he's been in all of Wes Anderson's movies except Bottle Rocket, the first one. And it turns out that they were trying to find him, trying to reach him to get him to play this. I mean, it would have been kind of a reach for Wes Anderson, who was a complete unknown down in Texas. Uh, but Bill Murray was like in a Winnebago somewhere traveling the country. And he said afterwards that he had the world's biggest collection of VHS uh, uh, tapes of Bottle Rocket because all of his associates, anybody who knew him and understood him, sent him Bottle Rocket and said, you should be working with these people. Uh, I mean, I think everybody who, who sort of understands Bill Murray and understands Wes Anderson understands how they go together. Um, but I think one of the ways that they go together, this has been my longstanding theory about this, is that Wes Anderson is essentially trying to do with depression what slapstick comedians and slapstick comedy practitioners do with physical pain, all right? So when you're watching slapstick, you see physical pain. You see things that would hurt. And you know that you're not supposed to regard them exactly the way you would if you saw this happen on the street to somebody. That It's funny because you know what the pain is. You know what the pain would be like. You also know that this isn't a serious situation. You're not really watching that. But you're also laughing because you've experienced physical pain, too. You know, you're just like, wow, that hurts. You know, that, that would really hurt if that, you know, if I fell in that manhole or whatever. You know, and in in Wes Anderson movies, it's the same, but it's with depression. I mean, most of us know what it's like to be depressed and how horrible it is. Uh, and somehow or other, Wes Anderson is exploring that and the pain of depression, kind of the way slapstick explores physical pain. And in Bill Murray, he has the perfect person. He has kind of a person who's willing to go there. You know, in Rushmore and in Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, he is willing to see how far you can go as an unhappy clown. Yes, and I think uh, I don't think it's it's really that much of a stretch for Bill Murray to play those kind of parts because he's he's been prone to depression in his own life. Mm. Um, he's gone through two bitter divorces, um, which you know happened to coincide with the time with the period that he hooked up with Wes Anderson. So I think um, there's a lot of 
pain that he was going through in his own life that he, that informed those performances as well. And I mean, I think the the fact that Wes Anderson obviously also has this incredible talent for whimsy. So there's sort of whimsy, and then there's darkness. And once again, you're just it, it's unsurprising that you know that they make such. A, a beautiful pair together. And the other thing about Bill Murray, and I, th- I think it's a little unusual, is, yeah, he seems to be interested in being the star some of the time, but he's also interested in not being the star. I, I think, you know, what the, some of the subsidiary performances, even going back to Tootsie, where I actually think he kind of does a remarkable thing in that movie, but, you know, more recently in a movie like Get Low, where he's not the star, um, or a lot of these Wes Anderson movies where he's on for five minutes. Uh, but he seems as excited about those as about anything. Probably goes back to the improv training, the idea of, of being willing to support the other people in the company. And, and if you're not the star of a scene, you can you can sort of still enable what the other person is doing when they're improvising on stage. I, I think uh, he's also likened uh, the community of actors to a, to a commune. Uh, so I think there's there's a great sense of of sharing and um, being willing to sort of subsume your own ego um, for the sake of the of the of the larger production. So I think that's that's part of it as well. All right. Uh, well, uh, Josh Nalea, our producer, uh, went to the Yale Drama School and started talking to some students there, right outside the Yale Repertory Theater in New Haven. Let's hear how that went. So what do you think about Bill Murray? I just think he's shaped the way that people look at characters. He does so much with his eyes alone. It just takes you right into the moment and takes you right into the story. I enjoy watching him in everything. Oh, gosh. Uh, he's been in so many wonderful films like Garfield, for instance. Wonderful, wonderful actor. Strike. Oh, you're right. You hear like the stories he'll interrupt weddings with a really authentic yeah, story yeah, or whatever, uh-huh, like uh-huh. interrupt people, talk to them in the airport. Any other noteworthy roles? Ghostbusters, SNL? Cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. That's my absolute favorite quote from Bill Murray. And one of the funniest movies ever is Ghostbusters. The dude is funny, very funny. I'm quite a big fan of Ghostbusters. Caddyshack, naturally. I did like his uh, brief appearance in Zombieland as well. Nobody can die like Bill Murray. I said Broken Flowers. It's an amazing film. He's good in it too, of course. And he, he really rocks the Speedo in The Life Aquatic and The Red Hat, which is a great combination. He's just my favorite actor of all time. I've seen a lot of old movies with him in it, like Stripes, Caddyshack, Ghostbusters. I think that the industry has put a comedic label on Bill Murray. It's what his knack is his niche. Uh, Groundhog Day is one of my top ten favorite movies. It's a movie that's both hilarious but also talks about how we wish we could change the, the, way, the way we are. He made me tear up in Life Aquatic, yes. but as much as he makes me laugh, he's like a great dramatic actor. No, that's his whole thing. The comic, the comic and the tragic and the dramatic all merge in everything he does. I don't think you can really separate them in his acting. I think that's kind of why he's a genius. All right. Those are some acting students at Yale Drama School talking about Bill Murray. So happy to hear the uh, shout outs for Life Aquatic, certainly in my top five list as well. Uh, Robert Schnackenberg is uh, visiting with us. He's the author of the big bad book of Bill Murray, a critical appreciation of the world's finest actor. Uh, I barely even know where to go from there, except that, you know, it it, it is, first of all, uh, as we're looking on Twitter, too, people are repeatedly mentioning uh, What About Bob and Groundhog Day. And they, they, they really are a couple, I think, those movies. They're made right, what, right around 92, 93, uh, and, and they really do represent kind of 
maybe the flowering of his comic movie acting at its adult best, right? In Ghostbusters, he's still a little bit of an adolescent. Ghostbusters is one big up yours to every possible kind of authority figure. It turns out nobody, not the EPA or the mayor or the cardinal or anybody knows what's going on. This bunch of nerds and their coveralls, they know what's going on and they have no respect whatsoever for anybody else and then they're going to save the planet. Um, you know, but by what about Bob and Groundhog Day? It's more he's a little bit more a servant to the script and the form. That's probably true. I, I like to think of his early uh, films, the Meatballs, the Caddyshacks, uh, the Stripes of the World. It's kind of the Bugs Bunny period. That's sort of the, the the analog for the comic persona that he built up along with Harold Ramis, who really helped him develop that uh, over the uh, the decade of the eighties. And I think at a certain point you reach, you know, Ghostbusters 2 and Scrooge, and that, that persona is kind of played out. I think he needed to begin a new string. And one of the things he does that's interesting in What About Bob is he plays the dumb guy, uh, which is not something that he had really done before. He, he plays this sort of needy psychiatric patient who bedevils Richard Dreyfus's high-strung psychiatrist for the entire movie, and a lot of that was really sort of cinema verite, as, as Bill Murray put it, because he and Richard Dreyfuss butted heads on the set, and they really sort of were those polar opposite characters for the duration filming. So that's that's kind of a departure from the kind of roles that he was playing um, in the previous nine or ten years. And then in um, Groundhog Day, you sort of see um, that kind of wiseacre character that he had developed um, in the 80s sort of get his comeuppance in a way, and sort of reach a point where he he develops spiritually by the end of the film and has this major epiphany where he kind of casts aside this self-centeredness that had kind of been the the hallmark quality of that character for so long and and moves on to you know higher ground of 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 becoming a more mature and and spiritually grounded person so it was kind of like shedding the skin of the of the the, the winger character from stripes or uh, you know, the, the Tripper Harrison character from Meatballs. He's kind of casting aside one persona and maybe paving the way for something new that was about to emerge. Yeah, I think Groundhog Day also, we, I know from reading your book that he was a, he's a big admirer of Cary Grant. And so, he, you know, here he is coming as close to kind of a Cary Grant role as he's going to get. He has some of the callousness and caddishness of Roger o- o Thornhill, uh, maybe, you know, but there's so much uh, of of Cary Grant is often discovering his own creamy center, uh, which is what Bill Murray does through a more sort of science fiction-y route in, in, in Groundhog Day. All right, we've got to take a quick break. Uh, things are moving along here way too fast for my taste. We'll be back after this. show was produced by Josh Nalea, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf, with huge help from Julia Pastel. Our interns are Nate Gagnon and Dan Schultz. And the part of Bill Curry was played by Carol Kane. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff singing the Star Wars theme, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. And now, back to Colin. When I say Bill Murray, what do you think of? 
probably Space Jam might be the first thing that jumps to mind. I think of really dry humor, you know, almost like the original sarcasm before it was so much a thing. It's mopey staring into the distant space. There's something kind of magical about the way he does things. I I remember reading some story once, him and like Harold Ramis and some of his friends were in India and they just lost Bill Murray. Like he just took off from them. And he found, like, a village, and he just started doing shtick in India. Like, who, who, did, who does that? You know, except someone who really has kind of an infectious personality when it comes to how they attack life. All right. Uh, we're talking to Robert Schnackenberg. He is the author of The Big Bad Book of Bill Murray. So um, it's rare, I think, for an actor to live at so many different levels. And, and th- there really aren't too many other people that we could talk about, at least modern people, whose off-screen life generates just as m- so much material, so much um, uh, material a- about his exploits, his antics, his adventures, and some of them here he's drunk and some of them he's, he's doing things that are probably ill-advised or disappearing or appearing someplace where he's not supposed to be. Uh, I think you have like a whole – uh, running sort of motif within the book called, I think, Tales from Murrayland, mm-hmm. which is all those things, right? Correct. Yeah, the, all the Bill Murray encounters and and sudden the times he just suddenly appeared and and interjected himself into someone's life in a weird and surprising and illuminating way. So the, yeah, those stories are all all collected in the book. Do you have a favorite? Uh, I think uh, the story about him going to Elvis Presley's funeral is a favorite for me, in, in part because. I think a lot of people think that, that this stuff is sort of a recent phenomenon. I mean, people have posited that maybe after his second divorce, he kind of went through a midlife crisis and started to party crash and show up in people's karaoke rooms as kind of a way of, you know, recapturing his childhood or something. Um, but I found in researching the book that these stories actually go back a long way. I mean, you know, Elvis dies in the summer of 1977. And Bill Murray somehow insinuates himself onto the, you know, celebrity charter plane that's taking famous people down to the funeral um, and ends up, you know, you know, one of the last persons on the flight, one of the last celebrities to get on the flight and goes down to the funeral and, and is in a in a press bus, you know, that's, you know, following Elvis's hearse to the uh, to the graveyard where he's buried and there's a a near riot at the cemetery and at one point he ends up standing on elvis's mother's grave and a a cop comes over and points a gun at him and threatens to shoot him if he doesn't move and get away from elvis's mom's grave and and then when elvis's his coffin is is led into the mausoleum he he feels like elvis's spirit is departing the cemetery and he's finally at peace with himself and he's able to you know, leave the cemetery and say goodbye to Elvis. So that, that's a story that, you know, shows that this this kind of stuff, these kind of weird public apparitions have been going on for a long time, and there's something more more calculated about it than, than uh, just these random appearances that we've been seeing lately. The other thing we know is, I mean, he can be delightful in these situations, and he can also be very delightful on movie sets. You have the Fairley brothers talking about how during Kingpin, you know, they'd have thousands of people sitting up in the stands as extras in a very grueling and boring situation in which extras could get very restless over a couple of days, but at any spare moment, he'd be up in the stands playing with them and entertaining them, and you're going to hear a, another story kind of like that in just a second. But there is, and I think you use the metaphor Jekyll and Hyde. There's, if Bill Murray's unhappy, he's going to make a lot of people unhappy. Yeah, there is that, that surly side to his personality. Although I have to say most of the stories that I came across uh, where he's being a jerk on the set really 
date really from back to the 80s and and early 90s. I think he's mellowed a lot with age, and I don't think he causes as much havoc on sets and is is quite as as bipolar as he used to be. I mean, I think there are a lot more stories. I think when he was really a leading man and was kind of carrying movies, I think there was probably a lot more pressure on him to perform. And I think he probably required a certain precision and exactitude from his his co-stars and the, and the cast and crew than he probably does these days. I think he's he's more content to come in and do his work and, and support the other players than perhaps he used to be. It's a, I, I won't uh, – people should just read the book. It's, it's interesting because one of the movies that we got interested in was Scrooge. And in fact, we have a little bit of a relationship with Karen Allen. We thought about trying to get her to come on. Then I read your account of Scrooge where apparently he was really unhappy all the time that for reasons Richard Donner keeping Bill Murray to be even mildly happy was this just ongoing pro- project. And I'm thinking probably Karen Allen didn't have a really good experience there. <laughs> She's probably not going to want to come on and talk about that. But uh, we did want to talk to somebody who had a really nice uh, Bill Murray experience because there's a lot of those. And so um, interestingly, Bill Raymond, who is a wonderful uh, character actor, who he was a Greek in The Wire, the, most, the personification of evil. And he's the more or less nice loan collector uh, for George Clooney and Michael Clayton. He's also been Scrooge at the Harvard Stage Company for like forever. He's this wonderful, wonderful guy, too. He's just the greatest guy. Uh, so we wondered, first of all, what he thought about Bill Murray as Scrooge uh, on, in Scrooge. But well, it turns out he had an even better story to tell than that. I was doing another film, uh, which was called How I Got Into College. Uh, For some reason, we got to take the afternoon off, and Bill Murray said, well, come on, I'll take you to lunch. He was talking to the cast and crew. (laughs) 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 So there's 30, 40 of us, and we get in cars, and we wind up on the Sunset Strip, and there's a big... Chinese restaurant. And so uh, we all sit down, we're having our stuff, and we're talking, we're talking, talking. But then the owner said he was going to keep it open. And then he comes over about three hours later, and he says, you know, uh, Mr. Murray, I really have to close the restaurant now. It's like five o'clock, we have to get ready for dinner. He says, okay. So Bill jumps up, says, okay, we got to get out of here. So so all 40 of us or 30 of us, whatever it was, get up and, and we walk out. We start walking out and we go down the stairs. But he says, first... I want to have a little a round of brandy, he says. <laughs> and he starts singing brandy, <laughs> the brandy song. You know, You're call a it fine bra- girl. Yeah. What a good, good wife you, you would, would be. be. Yeah. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, and then everybody starts singing, and we're all singing. Now, in the movie, um, Murray Christmas, there's a scene that's something like this, scene, mm. what I'm going to say. And we all start walking out, and we're following him, and he's singing, and the whole crowd of our 30 or 40 of us are wa- go- exiting the, and we're going down the three flights of steps that only have one flight, really. <laughs> and it's a very long flight. And we wind up, and we're walking down Sunset Boulevard, the, all of us singing Brandy with Bill Murray at the top. It was like a top moment in my life. And it was great. It was just great. <laughs> and I've always really loved him. And I love, love watching him and all like that. And uh, and then I went in for an audition for Quick Change. Mm-hmm. So I auditioned for him. I had told myself, I have to tell you something. You know, I was in that crowd of people that are, and I still remember and cherish it to this day. He says, you do. He says, well, you got the job. You don't have to tell your agent anything. <laughs> it's, a, it's enough that you said that, he yeah. said, or, or something like that. I made that up probably, but he was totally charming. And so I'd, I was in the film. I, I was uh, Jason Robard's second assistant or something like that. You know, So that was a great thing to do. So you play Scrooge. He did Scrooge. Mm-hmm. We could belabor that comparison, and we won't. But 
I think what's interesting about that is when you watch Scrooged, now that's Bill Murray kind of doing Bill Murray and, and he's doing the thing that he does so well that where he he's in the movie but there's like a part of him that's watching the movie too. I, I don't know that there's another actor who can get away with it quite the way he does. But people tear up. I get choked up watching Scrooged. So if he were that totally anarchical, screw everybody, screw everything guy that he sometimes played, the guys, guy in Ghostbusters, he couldn't make you cry. But mm. he can make you cry – watching the special, he can make you cry in Scrooge. So there's something else going on well, the, there. The guy in Ghostbusters, he could make you cry, but he wouldn't. He wouldn't, yeah. He just wouldn't bother. <laughs> if, yeah, if, <laughs> if that's the case. I just think that he, he has an immense palette to choose from. I think he, if you wanted to compare him to something historical, he's a, a great Brechtian actor too, you mm-hmm. know. He's a lot of great things. All right, uh, great Brechtian actor. Um, I should say that uh, Robert Schnackerberg hates Scrooged. Um, oh, can't stand it. It's your least favorite Bill Murray movie, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. I called it the worst film he ever made. That's going to get you in trouble with some people, I think. I know Scrooged has its partisans. I mean, Bill Murray is not one of them. He hated Scrooged, and so did Michael O'Donoghue, who wrote it. Uh, and so did most critics who watched it when it originally came out in the theater. So um, I will stand with the the audience consensus on Scrooge. I think it's terrible. So, you know, this is another reason that your book was very fascinating to me. So I feel as though the the breakout scene in Scrooge is is Bill Murray and Carol Kane. So she plays the ghost of Christmas, Christmas present and she just beats the crap out of him. I mean, she's just kicking him and pulling his lip down and poking him and punching him. And it doesn't look like staged, like, like choreographed fights. It looks like she's really doing this. She was. Yeah. And it turns out she was. Yes. She was. She was buffeting him about the head and shoulders and all parts of his body. Um, to the point where he had to tell her to stop. And I think she went away and cried because she was so upset at having hurt him. So, uh, yeah, that's that's very real. Very yeah. similitude. And he didn't like it. Did uh, not. <laughs> Who would? Uh, well, he's known for giving, giving up his body, but he wasn't willing to give it up quite that far, at least not for that movie. So I guess now comes time for me to what – what are your iconic favorite Bill Murray movies? I mean, you've seen them all, I assume. I saw them all. I watched them all in order um, in order to get a sense of sort of thinking along with him as he made his career choices as I was writing the book. So at the time I started, there were 52 movies. I went through from 1 to 52 in the order that he made them. Um, my favorite Bill Murray movie is Rushmore. Um, I also yeah, think it's too. one of his best performances, if not the best. Um, if you want a Bill Murray lead performance, I think you can't go wrong with Lost in Translation, which I think is also a superb film, and I, I really like that. Um, you know, we haven't really talked about that. Let's take, we've got very little time left, but I think it's worth it because we're getting some tweets about uh, Lost in Translation, uh, ranging from somebody who basically had the same experience but in a different different city in Asia. Uh, and Eduardo tweets saw Lost in Translation while jet lagged. Was it melancholical or was it me? No, it wasn't you. It's melancholical. Uh, and Amy tweets, I, I love Lost in Translation. Experienced a similar situation in my life, but in Shanghai and Beijing, not Tokyo. Bill Murray rules. That would be an interesting story to hear from Amy. But so, you know, it is an, it's an unusual movie. It's kind of a Wes Anderson movie without the whimsy. It's Sofia Coppola exploring more the tedium, you know, of being alive and what you can do to kind of fight your way out of that tedium. And, and it's all, there's all this sexual tension between him and Scarlett Johansson, but also a lot of sort of father-daughter advice, you know, stuff going on to – I don't know. It's a hard movie to talk about. I guess it is, yeah. Um, I kind of, you know, you think it's one of those movies you, you either get or you don't. You either relate to that character and what he's going through and what she's going through and the relationship and the bond that they're able to forge 
um, which is a sort of a non-romantic, non-sexual bond, which is unusual for movies. Usually, if you have two characters like that, then they, they end up hooking up in one way or another. And in this movie, there's there's the tension, but it never sort of comes to fruition and never gets realized, which I think gives a sort of uh, frisson to the movie that a lot of films don't have. I think that was a bold choice that they made, and I think it, it works to the film's benefit. Yeah, and I think it is. Actually, I saw this movie with my son when he was about 14. Uh, and he was the kind of person at 13 or 14 who wasn't necessarily interested in seeing the movies that I wanted to see and wasn't always a great sport when I brought him to that kind of a movie. And so I brought him to this movie and it couldn't have been more in that category of a movie that a 13 or 14-year-old boy would not want to see. Uh, and I was just sitting next to him the entire time and we don't talk during the movies and I was completely terrified of what I was going to have to deal with when the lights came up. Um, and – and when the lights came up, he turned to me and he said, you know, that wasn't bad. He said, not very much happened, but that's the way life is. Um, there you go. <laughs> I thought, you're, you're on your way to being a cinephile. That, you know, Because I think it is very much – and, you know, I mean, I link it to that Charlie Rose interview, which I don't know. I'm not a big Charlie Rose fan. But, I mean, Murray seems to be talking about that question too. How do you get through life, you know? Mm -hmm. And he talks a lot in that interview about how to be present – um, how to be who you want to be, how, how not to let life slip away from you. And near the end, he sort of says that to one of his brothers, they're constantly saying, this is not a dress rehearsal. You know, it's all just sort of going to go by and it's going to be over. Um, and to me, that's the movie where he's trying to explore that question. Yes. And and I think also it comes from the, the philosophy that he got from a guy named uh, George Gurdjieff, who he studied when he mm -hmm. was in Paris in the 80s. Uh, who has this kind of the central idea of his philosophy is that we're all sort of living our lives in a waking sleep and we need something to come along or someone to come along and kind of knock us out of the lethargy with which we go through most of our daily lives. And I think the, the situation that the character of Bob Harris is in in that film is sort of in that sort of Gurdjieffian hell uh, of being away from his family and in a very foreign place where he doesn't know anyone and doesn't speak the language and is kind of at sea uh, emotionally and spiritually and uh, is, is kind of trying to kind of fight his way back to the shore and try and reconnect with, with someone or something in his life. And I think that's uh, what gives the film the, the special power that it has. All right, we have to stop there. There's so, many, so much more we can say. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. out there. Come on. You don't know the words. Come on. Come on, let's hear it from this side of the theater. Come on, just over here. All right. All right, that's no good. Come on, let's try the other side of the theater. Come on. Well, that's... All right, how about just the men? Come on, just the men. All right, the real men. Let's hear the real men. All right, all right. All right, the women. The women now this time. No, the real women. The real women. Who you are? Are you? Who's making all the noise through the whole movie? My brother, the King of Christmas.